Well, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online and also those of you meeting in person here at uh, Central Campus and at all of our other campuses in Airdrie, uh, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and our Bear Spa Campus in Northwest Calgary. So as Pastor Kent mentioned last week, we're, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew, and presently we're in a series of messages that are based on Matthew 18 and 19. We're calling the series Family Matters because these chapters deal primarily with relational issues in our spiritual family, the church. In this message, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 19 in which Jesus not only addressed the issue of divorce, but he turns the spotlight on God's ideal for marriage and why marriages matter. And so I invite you to stand and join me in reading this passage together. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are few subjects that evoke more painful emotions than the subject of divorce. I pray, Lord, that you would soften and that you would calm our hearts, and that you would help us not only to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, but that we would be willing to be and to do whatever it is you're calling us to be and to do. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into this passage, I just need to make a couple of comments first. First of all, as I just indicated in my prayer, I'm aware that there are a few subjects that evoke more painful emotions than the subject of marriage breakdown. Pollsters tell us that between 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce, and so I think I can say with a high degree of certainty, there are few people or families represented here or online that have not been impacted by divorce. Divorce is painful for the partners involved, for the children of the marriage, and also for parents, siblings, and close friends. I take no delight in knowing that the scripture passage that we're looking at today will resurface hurts and emotions for some of you. But here's the thing. 
Apart from the occasional topical sermon series like the How Then Shall We Live series that we just did, we are committed to doing a systematic study of the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, and the passage we just read together is up next. Over the last 35 years, I've spoken on divorce several times, and each time I've received a number of critical emails. And so to be honest, <laughs> I would rather speak on love and grace today. But here we are in Matthew 19. I can't go around it, can't jump over it, so we got to go through it. So with all that in mind, let's look at our scripture passage here in Matthew 19. We read in verse 1 that Jesus leaves Galilee and he begins his final journey to Jerusalem where he would humbly submit himself to the cross and his ultimate act of forgiveness, which by the way, are two keys to a healthy marriage, humility and forgiveness. Verse 2 says, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. While all of these miracles were taking place, a group of religious leaders, Pharisees to be exact, approached Jesus with questions. Now you would think that their questions would have something to do with what was going on, the amazing miracles that were being performed. Instead, they approach him and ask him about divorce. A complete disconnect to what was going on. You see, their motive was not to determine whether Jesus was the real deal, the Messiah. Their motive was to test him, to trip him up, to get him to say something that would cause the people to get upset with him and to walk away from him. In verse 3, the Pharisees asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, in Jesus' day, the world was in danger of witnessing the almost total collapse of marriage and the home. A man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. We think that divorce is rampant and easy to obtain today. It was even easier to obtain a divorce in that day. Now that may sound surprising because we know that in Jewish society, marriage was considered to be a sacred relationship. Ideally and religiously, the Jewish people abhorred divorce because they knew God hates divorce. So what happened? Well, the practice fell far short of the ideal. And there are two major reasons for this. First of all, the woman in the eyes of the civil law was a thing. She was at the absolute disposal of her father and her husband. You'll notice the Pharisees they didn't also ask Jesus if it was lawful for a woman to divorce her husband. Not a chance that they would have asked the question like that because it was a patriarchal society in which women had virtually no rights. Women took no part in public life. They could not vote. School was only for boys. Furthermore, the Jewish law of divorce was very simple. In its expression and the way it was carried out, but very debatable in its meaning. Now, I want you to notice the question the Pharisees asked in verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command 
that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. They were referring to a concession God through Moses made for divorce, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I encourage you to turn to that chapter right now. This is what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then he goes on to give further instructions, which we will not read at this time. Now, the reason that divorce became as rampant in Israel as it was in Greece and also in Rome was because of how the phrase, something indecent about her, was interpreted. There were two schools of thought on the matter in Jesus' day. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, both of which were named after famous first century scholars. The one was conservative, the other one was liberal. The school of Shammai was strict and believed that Moses intended the word indecent to refer only to sexual sin and nothing more. In other words, a man could only write his wife a bill of divorcement if she was guilty of adultery or some other blatant sexual sin. The school of Hillel was liberal and broad-minded and said Moses' use of the word indecent meant anything displeasing to the husband or that a husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason. Now, human nature being what it is, guess which school of thought got the most votes from the men of that day? Well, the liberal one, of course. And consequently, men were soon divorcing their wives for a number of so-called justifiable reasons, like if she burned his dinner, if she went into public with her head uncovered, or if she talked to men on, uh, on the streets. These were just some of the lame excuses the men of that day were using to justify divorcing their wives. Now notice in verse 7, the Pharisees ask, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce. Well, in verse 8, Jesus clarifies that Moses didn't command divorce the way that the Pharisees state here in verse 7. He permitted it. Look at verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, divorce was never part of God's original plan for marriage. Jesus is essentially saying that God recognizes the reality of divorce and the certificate of divorce that Moses established. But nowhere does God ever command or sanction or approve of divorce. Now you ask, how could God permit something that he hates? Well, as difficult as it is to believe, God permits what he hates. For example, God hates sin, but he permits it. 
If he didn't, he would have ended Adam and Eve's life immediately when they sinned and rebelled against him. If God didn't permit sin, none of us would be alive. He would terminate us all. Well, in the same way, even though God hates divorce, he allows it. He despises divorce because he loves us so much, and he knows that divorce hurts us. It hurts us emotionally, it hurts us mentally, spiritually, financially, physically, and relationally with our children, our parents, our close friends and family. And that is also why God challenges us in the scriptures to not go there, but instead to do all that we can to strengthen our marriages because he knows the devastation divorce causes on so many levels. And so to summarize, here in Matthew 19, Jesus says to the Pharisees, God through Moses never commanded divorce. He only permitted it because in Jesus' words in verse 8, your hearts were hard. What does it mean, your hearts were hard? Well, this refers to our brokenness. This refers to our pride, our rebellious, selfish attitudes and actions. God, through Moses, instituted the certificate of divorce to prevent the total collapse of God's ideal for marriage and also to protect women of divorce who were innocent victims, often innocent victims, of their husbands' lust-centered desires and actions. But, says Jesus in verse 8, it was not this way from the beginning. He turns to the religious leaders and he essentially says, your heart and your focus is in the wrong place. Your lust has you so preoccupied with divorce and wanting to justify easy divorce that you have no understanding of how sacred marriage is in the eyes of God. In verse 4, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you quote Moses, but you aren't obeying Moses. So I'm going to take you back to the very beginning. I'm going to take you back before Moses, back before your traditions, and remind you of God's intention for marriage from the beginning. Look at verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says God's original blueprint for marriage and for sexual intimacy was one man with one woman joined together in a permanent union until death parts them. This was God's ideal for marriage. You see, marriage is the creative act of God. There are two and then the two are joined together in marriage by God himself in the spiritual realm. And at that point, they are no longer two, but one in God's sight. A couple may believe that this is all about their own decision-making, which of course is true to a degree. But when they decide to be married in a mysterious way in the spiritual realm, 
God glues two people together spiritually, emotionally, and physically. A spiritual transaction, a covenant, is made in the eyes of God and two become one. You see, when a couple marry, something new has entered the world that never existed before. There's a new reality, a we reality that has been born in the sight of God in the same way when a child is born to that marital union, a new life enters the world that never existed before. Marriage, and many people don't understand this, but marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A contract, if you think about it, is a limited commitment and has the expectation of performance. In other words, if you hold up your end of the contract, well, then I'll hold up my end. But if you don't keep up your end, then I won't either and the contract is over. That's what a contract is. And that is what human love is. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches about the nature of love. And he differentiates between human love and divine love. In verse 32, Jesus describes human love this way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, in other words, even the most evil people that you can imagine. Even those people love those who love them. Jesus says it's easy to love those who love you. You do good to those who do good to you. In marriage, human love says, if you're nice to me, well, then I'll be nice to you. As long as I'm attracted to you, as long as I can be proud of you, as long as you hold up your end of the contract, well, then I can love you back. But if you change, well, then my love for you changes as well. Now, the trouble with human love, with the human contract, is that it's not strong enough to weather the challenges and the storms that life throws at us. It's not strong enough to weather the stuff that imperfect people throw at us. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will likely not be loved the way that you hoped in marriage, hoped to be in marriage, because you married a person who is far from perfect. You may face life-changing health issues, tragedies, and disappointments in life. With the passing of time, your looks will change, your skin will sag, and your butt will drag. And when life throws these curves at you, you're going to need a lot more than human love. You're going to need more than a marriage contract. In verse 27, Jesus says, you're going to need God's love, a divine love. But I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus says that God's love is so deep and durable that it even loves enemies. 
Divine love endures even when a spouse begins to feel more like an enemy than a friend. And those of you who are married, you can relate to that, can't you? Those feelings from time to time. Human love is a feeling that focuses on what the other person is or isn't doing, whereas divine love is a decision that focuses on my responsibility, on me remaining faithful to my wedding vows. This is what a covenant love or a divine love is in marriage. It says, regardless of the fact that you let me down regularly, regardless of your performance, I'm committed to loving you. Divine love says, rather than trying to change you into being the kind of person that I can love, I will focus my attention on being the kind of person you can love. Now again, please understand, divine love doesn't mean that you become a doormat for a spouse to abuse or to take advantage of or to walk all over. That is not the intent here. No, I'm talking about having a godly mindset, a divine love that refuses to define my happiness in marriage on the basis of what my spouse can do for me. And instead, by God's grace and through much prayer, focusing on what I can do for my spouse. That's what a covenant is in marriage and what God had in mind for marriage and how much he hates anything that defiles or seeks to end a marriage. That's why Jesus issues the warning he does here in verse 6. What God has joined together, let no one separate. This is also why divorce brings such deep pain and emotional trauma. Because you're undoing something that God has glued together. Someone described it this way. A divorce is like an amputation. You survive, but there's less of you. And that is why single and unmarried people should not jump into marriage with the attitude, well, you know, let's just give marriage a shot. And if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll just end it. Because you see, when God glues you together, divorce will tear and rip your soul like nothing else. This is also why casual sex outside of marriage, friends with benefits, may seem harmless, but it messes you up spiritually and emotionally. Our society wants us to think that sex is just biology, just a physical act, you know, no different than satisfying hunger with food. But it is so much more than that. There is no such thing as casual sex, for sex is more than a physical union. It is a metaphysical union that involves us at a deep spiritual level. And sex outside of marriage in the spiritual emotional realm leaves a part of us with that person. Now given that reality, it's important that I also add that when you sincerely surrender your life to God, He will restore what was lost through His redeeming grace and His miraculous power to heal. But without Christ, 
Casual sex will leave you with emotional and spiritual turmoil that you will not find relief from apart from Christ. You see, we're not talking about a man-made deal here. We're talking about a God-made deal who sees sex and marriage as sacred, a covenant made in the eyes of God. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees back to the creation account, to the beginning. And he says, God's plan for marriage was simple and clear. One man with one woman joined together in an exclusive relationship for as long as both shall live. So with all that in mind, and with the little time I have left, <laughs> I want to direct my final comments in this message to four groups of people. First, a word to those to those who are single or unmarried. If you're contemplating marriage or hoping to marry one day, I challenge you not to enter into marriage casually or lightly. This is why here at Center Street, we insist that those who want us to officiate their wedding take our marriage preparation course, meet with a pastor and with marriage mentors to talk about their readiness for marriage. You see, in many cases, the cause of divorce existed in the couple's relationship long before they got married, like money problems or unfaithfulness or sexual issues, addictions, physical or emotional abuse. The problem is, far too often, a couple experience what I call a serious case of love sickness. To the point where they lose their objectivity and discernment. They see only the good in the other and they turn a blind eye to the character and personality issues and the habits and the communication issues that could put significant strain on their love and their marriage. They see they refuse to go there because their focus is on having this person, almost possessing this person by marrying this person. Even when they know there are serious issues that should be addressed. Over all my years of ministry, many divorced people have told me they wish before they got married they would have been more objective and hadn't been in such a rush to get to the altar. They've told me they wish they would have had the courage to face and confront the red flags even if it meant the end of their relationship and their marriage plans, and that they wouldn't have ignored the signs that the other person wasn't ready for marriage or didn't feel the same way, the way that they did about their relationship. They have also told me they now wish they had listened more to the concerns their parents their friends and mentors express to them about their relationship. All that to say, hold high God's ideal for marriage by slowing down a little, being honest with yourself and the person that you're contemplating marrying, and being open to God's confirmation and also the input and confirmation of others that you respect. Then a word to those who are married. Whether your first 
marriage or second marriage, my words are directed to the marriage that you are in right now. Let's hold high God's ideal for marriage by doing all that we can with his help to making our marriage all God wants it to be. Regardless of what challenges we may face, let's not waver from the vows we took on our wedding day to be faithful to one another until death parts us. Let's communicate to those around us in our words, our attitudes, and our actions. I'm off the market. Don't even think about flirting with me. I intend to be faithful to my spouse. Let's stop daydreaming about what life might be like with someone else and instead pour thought and energy into creating our own romantic story with our spouse that's based on reality rather than fantasy. And let's not settle for a mediocre marriage either. Let's invest deeply in our marriage to make it rich and satisfying. A marriage that makes others get on their knees and say, oh God, give me a marriage like that. Let's be quick to forgive and to seek forgiveness and to use every opportunity we can to communicate through our attitude and our behaviors, I love you and I treasure you without expecting anything in return. Let's affirm and encourage one another to be all that God created us to be and to believe the best of one another's intentions. And let's protect our marriage by keeping God at the center of our marriage, by reading, meditating on God's word, by praying together regularly, by gathering with other believers to worship God and to hear from the Lord through the teaching of his word the way we are right now, and by being in community and on mission with a small group of like-minded Christ followers. And if our marriage is in trouble, Let's be open and humble enough to admit it to each other and to commit it to God in prayer and to seek the help that we need. In short, let's commit to glorifying God in his ideal for marriage by keeping our marriages healthy. And then a word to all of us as a church. Holding high God's ideal for marriage means that when we become aware that a couple that we're close to is struggling in their marriage, that we not judge them or gossip about them, but that we pray for them and that we do all we can to support them and lovingly encourage them to find a, a way through rather than a way out. Holding high God's ideal for marriage also means we do not treat those who, whose marriages have failed like second-class citizens, like they're damaged goods. Even if, like many of the men in Jesus' day, they divorced for unbiblical, for selfish, for flippant reasons. I mean, let's be honest. My life, your life, our entire church is filled with people who have failed and God, by his grace, has redeemed and made new. You see, church, I say this with great reservation because I don't want to minimize the seriousness and the high cost of divorce. 
But the fact is, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. As painful as divorce is, we really don't understand the grace of God and why Jesus came. If we can't forgive someone for the part they played in a marriage breakdown. The truth is, even though God hates divorce, he still loves the divorcee. And he calls us to do the same. As I understand the spirit of Christ in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, his intent was not to heap condemnation on those who divorce, but to warn us of the high cost of divorce and the challenge to fight for our marriage. And so we must avoid two extremes as a church and also as Christians. The first is we must never treat divorce as if it's no big deal. The way that our culture does. And the way that the ancient world did in Jesus' day. We must always hold high God's ideal for the permanence of marriage. And do all we can as couples and as a church to prevent divorce. On the other hand, while we need to uphold the truth of Scripture, we must not be legalistic and use Scripture as a club where we tell a spouse who's being abused, for example, that they need to stay in the marriage because the Bible only permits divorce in the case of adultery and desertion. We must respond not only in the truth of Christ, but also in the, in the spirit of Christ, loving as he did, having the compassion, the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness he did. To take God's word here alone and to ignore the spirit in which, it was, uh, in which he said them would turn us into ruthless legalists, gloating over those who have sinned. Here's the thing. We are not in a position to judge a person's motives. Only God knows their heart and the real reason for their actions. For example... A husband may appear to be a model of integrity in public. From your perspective, he's a godly person who would be a candidate for, you know, to serve on the church board or other positions of leadership. And yet at home, he's a brute. He abuses and even beats his wife. Or a wife, for example, may appear loving and caring in public, she too would be a candidate to serve in leadership. But behind the scenes, she deliberately treats her husband in such a way, hoping to wear down his resolve and get him to the place where he gives up and files for divorce so that she can get out of the marriage and make it appear like she's the innocent victim. You see, these examples show how we are not in a position to judge other people's motives. We often don't know the real story. I mean, who did Jesus condemn when he was on our planet? Did he condemn the woman caught in adultery? Or did he condemn those who looked morally pure and upright on the surface, but were corrupt within? Oh, to be clear, Jesus didn't gloss over her sin. He confronted her about her sin. 
But then he forgave her. And he told her to sin no more. To no longer continue her way of sin. But even in that situation, the weight of his judgment was levied against those who were self-righteous externally, but corrupt within. All that to say, church, please, let's do all we can to fight for our marriage. Let's do all we can to help one another fight for our marriages. But when every prayer has been prayed and every attempt to restore the marriage has been made and the marriage still ends in divorce, let's join God in realizing that because of sin, because of our brokenness, divorce happens. And when a divorced person turns around, repents, comes back home, let's embrace them with the same love and grace we ourselves have received from Jesus. And then finally, a word to those who have experienced divorce. Unless you're a callous, unfeeling person, I know you have many regrets. You have wept many tears and hurt deeply over your divorce. If you are a spouse who didn't want to divorce, I remind you that you are not invaluable or unlovable because you were rejected by your former spouse. You are a precious child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and as his child, your identity is based on who you are in him and not on what others think or say about you. You have undoubtedly suffered greatly even more if your spouse had died, for this is a living death. And understandably, you have faced anger and bitterness and perhaps even rage. But I want to challenge you not to stay there, to not stay in that dark place, because it will not only leave you in complete despair and inner turmoil, but it will prevent you from experiencing the new thing that God wants to do in and through your life. The beautiful thing he wants to create in you from the ashes of your pain and lost dreams. Now, if you are the spouse who instigated the divorce for something other than a biblical reason, I know from talking to some of you over the years, even though others may think you have endured very little, that you have it easy, the truth is, you continue to suffer the consequences of your unfaithfulness to the marriage as well. But here's the thing. As unfortunate and pain-inducing your action was, I want to remind you that God's grace is greater than your sin. Through the amazing grace of Jesus, you can find forgiveness and start all over again if you sincerely humble yourself, repent, and embrace his gift of grace and freedom. God forbid that anyone should ever believe they have sinned themselves outside of the grace and the love of God because of divorce. 
As some of you know, even though as individuals, my parents had many remarkable qualities. Their marriage fell apart when I was just a young teen. My dad, who instigated the divorce, felt so ashamed and shunned by so many people from his church that he concluded that God had given up on him too. And for years, he lived like a prodigal. He lived a wayward life, convinced he could never come home. For years, he felt totally unworthy to even pray and believed he was not worthy to go to heaven when he died. And I recall the times that he faced surgery. And when I met with him the night before, he would weep with regret for the role he played in the breakdown of his marriage. And he was afraid of dying in the surgery because he was convinced that God was still angry with him and wouldn't forgive him. And I would show him from the scriptures numerous times over the years that apart from what Jesus did on the cross for each of us, none of us is worthy or capable of going to heaven on the basis of our righteousness or our efforts. None of us. And it wasn't until a few years before he passed away that he finally understood grace and allowed himself to believe that he was loved and accepted by God. You know, the heart of Christianity is that there must be a death before there can be a resurrection. Jesus had to die and be buried before he could rise again. All the way through Scripture, we say how it wasn't until people went through a dark night of the soul, came to the end of themselves, and died to their pride and to their self-sufficiency, that God was able to do a new thing, perform a resurrection, as it were, in their life. Peter Scazzaro says, in the same way, there are deaths that must take place in our lives for God to release new, fresh resurrections. Divorce is a death. And if you wait and you persevere and open your life to him in repentance, God will not just cleanse you and do a deep work of humility in your life, but he will resurrect you into a new beginning of something beautiful. I mean, have you ever noticed that we don't learn very much from our successes? That often it is only through suffering, through pain, the dark night of the soul, where we finally stop and understand and God can begin to do something new in us. If you're in a hurting marriage, I challenge you to not only seek the help you need, but to persevere and keep waiting on God for the new thing he wants to do in you and in your marriage. If you've been through a divorce or if you, have or if, if you are children of divorce or if your kids have been through a divorce, 
and all the pain surrounding it. Wait on God for the dawn of something beautiful, for a resurrection, for the new thing God wants to do in you and then through you. May it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? Close your eyes. And just ask those two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it?